This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... We have considerable issues with the, the use of uh, military courts uh, and trying civilians in, um, in military courts because there aren't the procedures of the fair trial procedures which we would expect. That's Jeremy Lawrence, spokesman for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights on Tunisia's deepening crackdown against perceived political opponents. Details coming up also. A crash between an armored car and a bus kills 20 people in South Africa. Two prominent Ugandan opposition legislators are freed after more than a year in prison. And our coverage of Black History Month in the U.S. continues. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. In the U.S., February is Black History Month, which recognizes the contributions of African Americans. This year's theme is Black Resistance. For more on how this month is being celebrated by black people in America, I'm joined live from the National Museum of African American History and Culture here in Washington, D.C., by VOA's Ignatius Anor. Hello, Ignatius. Hiya, hiya. Good morning to you, and how are you? I am fine, thank you. You are now inside this august and inspiring edifice, the world's largest museum dedicated to African-American history and culture. So talk to us about the significance of the museum and how it is all tied up to the celebration of African-American History Month. Yeah, yes, the museum was um, unveiled in September of 2016. I wanted to know that the architecture has a three-tiered layer crown, which was inspired by the people of Yoruba from West Africa. One of the architects is David Ajaye, a Ghanaian British. It houses more than 40,000 artifacts and tells the story about how Africans were forced into the United States in the 1400s. Up until the successes, their determination, their spirit to thrive despite what they had to go through and where black people or African-Americans are in their space in the United States today. It also celebrates the achievements, not only in social justice, but economy and finance, technology, and as far as the, you know, the environment goes as well. And that's the reason that for the past few hours, Tons and tons of people, including African-Americans themselves, have been sworn into this institution, which stands as a learning center for what they call the true history of African-Americans in the United States. And some of those individuals are these two people that I have with me, actually three, because they have a son, Jalil Brown and uh, Tahira Brown. Tahira Brown is a financial accountant, and her husband is a security officer, and they have a son here. So, uh, Tahira, let me start with you. You are a financial accountant coming yeah. all the way from New Jersey. Yeah. Why did you want to be here today? We wanted to learn more that we can that's not taught in school. And we also wanted to bring our son, even though he's two, but just start him early so he can see our history. Um, and for us to just make our own perspective instead of just hearing what's being taught to us. Because a lot of things is not shown to us that we need to know. <laughs> All right. Um, 
it's a, and it's Valentine's Day, so family day. <laughs> okay, thank you. Let me go to the husband, Talil, uh, uh, coming all the way from New Jersey. What do you want to take out from your trip today? As you know, this month happens to be Black History Month that yes. throws the spotlight on African Americans. Today, I want to take home um, a new understanding. You know, visualize some of the things that's just going on in there. You said there's all these different exhibits. I want to see it. I'm on, like I said earlier, I'm a history buff. I want to be able to show my son some of this stuff. When he gets older, I can say he came here. And we um, we tried to start him out early. How important is getting the truth of the history uh, of African Americans in the U.S. to you and your family? It's, it's, very, it's very important because, I mean, like my wife said, we were taught what we were taught, especially where we're from in the Trenton, New Jersey school system. We weren't taught too much. My father taught me a lot um, in studying Islam and different things. So I want to teach my son the same. Whatever is the truth, I want to know what it is. Whether I have to change my way of thinking or if what I was taught happened to be the truth, then we'll see. Okay. Let me come to you, Tahira. Uh, what are you most proud of and not proud of as an African-American in America today? I know we spoke before. I'm very proud just being black in America to have my own voice and to have opportunities that a lot of our other counterparts don't have. Um, I'm not proud of the struggle. We have to take longer for us to get to what we want us to get to. We have to go through hoop hurdles and we get looked upon and judged on. So, But I'm just definitely proud just to be here and be able to create my own family and just have our own opportunities. <laughs> okay. Thank you to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so that's the Browns, I would say, uh, Talil Brown and Sahira Brown uh, coming all the way from New Jersey to Washington, D.C. to learn about uh, the history that is within the walls of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture as the United States commemorates Black History Month Yes, so many notable items in that museum, Uh, Ignatius. I remember when I visited, I I was so impressed with that slave cabin that was deconstructed and rebuilt from its original location on Edisto Island, South Carolina. It's just uh, a sight to behold. It is absolutely a sight to behold, yes. And when you look at it, um, you get inspired by really the contributions of African-Americans here, because it is where the inspiration is coming from. Iron bras, three-tier layers like crowns, and just sits at the very heart of the capital of the U.S., Washington, D.C. Just right across it, you will see the Washington Monument and the White House. It's not too far away from where we are. Great. From the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, VOA's Ignatius Anor, thank you for your input. Thank you, Yehaya. Uh, there are fears some Nigerian voters might be intimidated on election day leading to election manipulation. But police and electoral officials say the voting later this month should be successful. Mike Bonnier reports from Port Harcourt. The head of Nigeria's electoral body, the Independent National Electoral Commission, or INEC, says the commission is determined to conduct peaceful, free, and fair elections. Chairman Mahmoud Yakubu has said the commission has all the necessary arrangements in place to hold successful elections on February 25th and March 11th. Despite those assurances, 
An African affairs expert has some reservations about the Nigerian elections. Christopher Isike is a professor of African politics and international relations at the University of Pretoria, South Africa. No, no, no matter how well intentioned the INEC um, and its chair may be, people, many Nigerians, many of who have a propensity to sabotage the Commission's good work because of their personal greed, ethnic and religious sentiments that drive how politics is seen and played in Nigeria. We can only hope the human factor doesn't compromise the elections in this regard. Speaking via WhatsApp, Isike says he is worried that voters could be intimidated by ruling parties in the states. He notes more people have obtained their permanent voter cards or PVCs. The whole electioneering process has indicated that this election has generated a lot more interest than used to be the case. For example, there is a significant increase in the number of registered voters and those who have collected their PVCs. My concern is whether they will actually turn on on election day to reclaim their country or whether they will succumb to the voter intimidation and voter suppression antics of the ruling party in some states. Isike says... He's also worried about security, especially safety of the people. There have been attacks on some INEC offices around the country, and some regions have seen scores of attacks by militant groups or criminal gangs. Muiwa Adejobi, a chief superintendent of police and spokesperson of the Nigerian police, says they are ready to ensure peaceful polls. We are ready. We have done what we should. We have done our operation order to capture deployment, admin, enforcement of the law and what have you. We have incorporated all relevant security agencies into the committee to manage this election. The, the body called ISIS, Interagency Consultative Committee on Election Security, is put here by the IGP. And other security agencies are members of this committee. Adejobi says the police have deployed officers to areas that are prone to attack based on threat analysis. Isike, also the director of African Center for the Study of United States at the University of Pretoria, says the election is critical to the future of Nigeria and Africa. As Africa's biggest democracy with over 90 million potential voters, the election is a litmus test or a signpost of whether democracy is backsliding or is interested in the Nigerian elections because they want the process to be credible and the people allowed to vote for their candidates. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Portacot, Nigeria. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has wrapped up a five-nation trip to five Arab and African countries seeking to expand Moscow's influence while Western nations have been trying to isolate his country with sanctions after its invasion of Ukraine. His tour took him to Iraq, Mauritania, Mali and South Africa before finishing in Sudan. Mark Katz, professor of government and politics at George Mason University, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shanawi how Russian diplomacy is seeking to break its isolation by expanding opportunities in Africa. 
Well, you know, much to the chagrin of the West, Africa and uh, many Arab countries, others in the non-West have been a lot more sympathetic toward uh, Russia with regard to the war in Ukraine. They might not support what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but they don't want Russia to lose. They like about Russia is that Russia gives security assistance without bothering about human rights or democracy or anything like this, whereas Western countries are, to some extent, more interested in getting these governments to reform, to make compromises, and they don't want to do that. So a lot of them like dealing with Russia. They like the way that Wagner in particular violently presses opposition to these governments. While Lavrov was in town, Khartoum was also hosting envoys from the U.S., Britain, France, and other countries, trying to play a role in Sudan's transition to civilian rule. Lavrov said, Western delegations are following our steps and trying to hinder our efforts towards having a multipolar world. How do you explain this statement? Well, this is really quite funny, it seems to me. I'm sure these delegations were probably in the works, you know, before Lavrov decided to visit these places. I don't think that they're deliberately following him. What I do think, though, is that if Lavrov favors a multipolar world, it means it's a world in which the different great powers are competing for influence in the other countries. And so it strikes me that that's exactly what the West is doing, as well as with Russia. And if Russia doesn't want them doing that, then it must not be interested in the multipolar world, but it wants to have Africa for its own private reserve, it seems to me. So I think that the argument that Lavrov's making is illogical. Plus, it seems to me that uh, African governments, you know, they have agency themselves. They like the idea of being courted by the West and courted by Russia, courted by China. They don't want to give up this uh, freedom of action. Russia apparently aims to present itself as a continent's security broker and project the image of a defender of Africa. We can see that Mali's growing ties with Russia have coincided with a breakdown in relations with France, and last year, the rift led Paris to withdraw all of its troops who had been battling extremists since 2013. Lavrov also offered support for Mauritania in the fight against extremist groups in the Sahel when he met President Mohammed Welchir in Nouakchut. What do you make of that? Well, indeed, several African governments, which had been former French colonies, seem to be increasingly uh, at odds with France. And I think that they like the idea of sticking it in the eye of the French by turning to the Russians, that the Russians will do things that the French won't do for them. I think the real problem is, though, the Russians have not been able to actually resolve any conflict. If they're a security broker, I can't think of a of an instance in which they actually resolved any conflict, nor have they managed to defeat any opposition to any state either. In fact, it might not be in their interest, because if, in fact, the opposition is eliminated, then there might not be any further need for uh, Wagner to be in those particular countries. So I think that it's really a very self-interested policy. And I think, you know, for uh, very unfortunate reasons, uh, a lot of African governments and uh, the public in many African states right now sees their interests as somehow aligned with Russia. But I think the real question is, will this uh, be successful in the long term? In other words, that presumably they're going to want Russia to actually do something for them. And if it can't, I don't see how they're not going to grow 
uh, as disillusioned with Russia as they were with France. That was Mark Katz, professor of government and politics at George Mason University, speaking with VOA's Mohammed El Shanawi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. A Ugandan court has released two prominent opposition legislators, Alan Soanyana and Mohamed Sagarinia, after more than a year in prison. The two members of parliament are accused of a series of murders, among other crimes. Some rights activists and opposition politicians have said the MPs are victims of a political witch hunt. Reporter Mugume Davis Rawakarinji has more from Kampala, Uganda. The two opposition members of parliament were released on Monday after the state said that gathered enough evidence against them. Jacqueline Okwi, the spokesperson for the Electorate of Public Prosecution. The director of public prosecutions considered the illnesses of the members of parliament and the fact that the witnesses had been secured. Investigations in the matter have been concluded and now the office of the DPP awaits the court to cause list the case for hearing. Douglas Impuga is the leader of position in the parliament and one of the lawyers for the accused, Alan Sawanyana and Mohamed Segrinya. Both are members of the largest opposition group, the National Interplatform. Mpuga says the 17-month in detention caused emotional and physical stress to both their families and their electorates. He calls the charges politically motivated. I have been inspecting the two in prison. They are sick. They need treatment. And I hope when their lives, their broken bodies are restored, they will have will summon the energy to confront um, the charges against them in court. And I have no doubt that these ballooned charges against them will collapse uh, along the way. Police accused Sewanyana and Segrinya of orchestrating a series of attacks by machete welding men in the Masaka district in central Uganda in mid-2021. Dozens of mostly elderly people were attacked, more than 20 died. It is not clear when the two MPs will be summoned for a court hearing. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarinjini Kampala, Uganda. Valentine's Day is the busiest time of year for the flower industry and Kenya, the fourth largest exporter of cut flowers in the world. Kenya's rose and carnation producers are also showing love to Mother Earth by shifting to solar power to fight climate change. Juma Majanga reports from Nakuru, Kenya. It's a beehive of activity at Agriflora, Kenya a flower factory in Nakuru County, the heartland of Kenya's floriculture industry. It's almost Valentine's Day, the busiest time of the year for flower growers around the world. The cut flower industry generates hundreds of millions of dollars for Kenya each year, but the industry has been blamed for widespread pollution, as Elizabeth Kimani an environmental management auditor explains. The industry has been under a lot of scrutiny, both locally and internationally. And uh, we've had to deal with a lot of issues of environmental pollution, uh, worker or human rights violations. Environmentalists say industries in Africa have the opportunity to go green. Richard Munang is the Deputy Regional Director for Africa Office at the UN Environment Programme. Focus on leveraging clean energy solutions, sun, hydro, geothermal. And when you look at the flower industry, especially in Kenya, yeah, 
it's actually getting into the space of clean energy. Kenya's flower producers say in recent years they have been shifting to solar power for lights and equipment in part to cut carbon emissions and fight climate change. Charles Mulemba is the general manager at Agriflora Kenya Limited. By embracing solar, we are trying to control the emission of carbon dioxide uh, from what we are doing uh, in the farm. So we've estimated by embracing solar uh, to be cutting down on uh, carbon dioxide emissions by about uh, 52 tons per, per month. That translates to about uh, 600 tons of carbon dioxide every, every year. Flower growers say solar power has also cut production costs. Rafael Kiptis is the head of finance at Sian Flower Group in the Kenyan Rift Valley region. Our normal cost of power for our all uh, farms ranges between $90,000 to $100,000 a month. And now we are looking at uh, if you do 40%, we are saving an estimate of around $40,000 a month. Despite efforts to shift to solar power, private businesses like Agriflora say they cannot store all the power they can harness. Industry officials say that's because under current law, businesses are not allowed to store excess solar power on the national grid for future use. Environment experts say governments in Africa need to do more to incentivize and promote solar uptake. Here again is Dr. Richard Munang. The fly industry that you mentioned, investing in clean energy and specifically solar and making their full operation 100% solar needs to see what they're going to gain by moving away from their current operations to clean energy operations. The lower electricity costs from solar power would mean even bigger profits during peak periods like Valentine's Day. Yvonne Tirop is a horticulture marketing expert in Nairobi. Valentine is very important in the flower calendar. It's the time when, of course, it's the time for love, but at the same time it's a time for the growers to really make up for highest sales in the season. As consumers learn more about sustainability and climate change, environmentalists say flower growers, like other industries, will have even more incentive to go green. Juma Majanga for VA News, Nakuru, Kenya. The World Health Organization says it will hold an emergency meeting today after at least nine people died in Equatorial Guinea of the Marburg hemorrhagic uh, fever, which can cause severe bleeding and organ failure. Another 16 people have shown potential symptoms. The country's health ministry declared a health alert yesterday in Kaintem province in the neighboring Mongomo district, as well as, a, as, well as a lockdown plan affecting 4,000 325 people. The French news agency AFP said that the government is investigating the cause of the suspected cases in the forested eastern region near the borders of Gabon and Cameroon. The natural cause of the Marburg virus, which is a cousin of Ebola, is the African fruit bat, which can transmit the disease to humans who then pass it on to others. The WHO says there are no vaccines or antiviral treatments for the virus, though potential treatments are being evaluated. 
and a crash between a bus and an armored truck has killed 20 people and injured 60, including 10 in serious condition in South Africa's northern Limpopo province. The French news agency AFP says police divers are searching a river that runs along the highway for anyone who may have been swept away. Authorities are investigating the cause of the accident, which may have been caused in part by heavy rains. The news service notes that flooding in several regions of the country in recent days has killed at least 12 people, which has led the government to declare a national disaster. And with that, we conclude and wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.